And good morning to you. And uh, we have an outline that's available for you. I have a lot that I want to talk about this morning, but uh, limited time. So some of it I'm going to go through very quickly. But I wanted to show you that this in the bulletin that you hopefully received will allow you to get a lot more out of our time together here because there's more to it than what we will actually talk about this morning. But uh, I wanted to ask and answer the question, what does God want? And today you might know that there's a football game this afternoon. And it's interesting because there was a survey. Was that a clap? Was that a... Uh, there was a survey that was done. What does God, you know, want in, in essence? Does God care who wins the Super Bowl? And uh, 88% of Americans think that God doesn't care. And then about, uh, what is that? I can't even read the numbers. 8% say, yeah, he does care. 5%, I don't know. They just don't know. And I don't know, you know, I don't know either. But I hang out with Jesus a lot. And if I know him at all, and if he did care, he'd probably be rooting for the Patriots. So I just want to go on record and let you know that, you know, based upon some conversations he and I have had lately, I, I just have that sense that he would be right there. And I'm going to give you evidence for that. So listen carefully because the evidence is coming very quickly. So let me show you that. We're in the book of uh, Kings. And we're talking about a fellow by the name of Jehoshaphat, actually in Chronicles. Uh, and Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings. We're in the Chronicles of the Kings. He was good, but he had his moments. And so I relate a lot to Jehoshaphat. I try to be good, but I have my moments. And so we're going to look at that journey as what does God want for him? He ruled over the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. So he would rule out of Jerusalem in the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, the green you see on the map, uh, those are the ten northern tribes of Israel. King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings there is, was ruling there. And so they're a simultaneous about the mid-800 B.C., 850 B.C., roughly. That's the era that we're talking about. These are historical facts. And God politely gives us the truth so we can learn from them. I want us to learn from these guys. And so what does God want? First of all, very quickly through this first point, God wants us to be committed. And I wouldn't think you would be here unless you have some measure of interest in what it means to be committed. I love this word in Second Chronicles 17.3. It says, The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's early days. The early days of J David were the best days as he constantly sought the Lord. Wouldn't you want, if God to write down your name in the Bible, wouldn't you want God to say, and Dave Mitchell, or put your name in there, followed, followed the example of his father David. And so the Lord was with David Mitchell, or put your name in there. I would want God to be able to put in the Holy Scriptures that I, like Jehoshaphat, followed his ways. What were those things? There's three things that reflect the commitment that God wants. The commitment to remove any unholy alliances. And that's one of the things that he did early on in Second Chronicles 17. It says, Jehoshaphat did not seek the Baals. So God, in commitment, removed myself from sin. That's the first commitment. The second commitment is this. When I pursue God's Word and His righteousness in my life. Now, these are givens. These, are, these should not be new information for us, but that's the commitment of Jehoshaphat that God said, He is someone I am with. He is following me. Second Chronicles 17, 4 through 6 says, Jehoshaphat sought the God of his father. He followed his commandments. 
It did not act as Israel did. The, the ten northern tribes of Israel were very evil under King Ahab. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord. I love that word established. Hebrew word, little background, little insight. The word established could be defined in this way. It's a sense of well-being which results from being under God's hand. It's interesting that God created us, God designed us, and then He gave a rule book called the Bible. And He said, the more you follow the Bible, the more established you will be. And I've given you some on the outline, the back side of the Digging Deeper, some ways that you can be established. And when you live according to God's Word, life tends to improve, if not on your circumstances, certainly in your heart. So God invites us into that to be established by seeking out His Word and His righteousness. Thirdly, God wants commitment like this. When my life influences others because of God's work in my life, God wants to influence others through us. That when God's working in my life, He wants to influence the lives of those around us. And that's powerful. That's what happened in the case of Jehoshaphat. Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the land. See the impact. When God's working in Jehoshaphat, it impacts the kingdoms around them. And uh, all the lands were around Judah so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. That word dread might be a little misleading in our English language. In point of fact, that Hebrew word for dread can actually mean to be in awe or in reverence. That the kingdoms around them were in awe of these people because they saw the establishment of God upon them and they didn't want to even go to battle with them. And that's what happens when you commit to Jesus Christ. This is an illustration, but it should have application for us. That when I'm committed to remove the sin, when I'm committed to pursue the commands of righteousness, and that when I have influence on others, it actually creates awe and respect. Let me give you an example of that. Just yesterday, my daughter sent sent to me a uh, post from the Facebook. And speaking of the Patriots, I was earlier. Here's the transition. I was intrigued because the Patriot players and the captains in particular, they'll sit around a room and they'll have interviews. So they'll be sitting at a table or a stand and, and uh, reporters will come up and ask them questions. Well, one of those players is our own Matthew Slater who grew up here. Some of you had influence upon him even when he was a little preschooler and doing his, uh, well, anyways. Uh, he was an all boy. And so how he's all grown up playing in the Super Bowl for the third time, I think, as I recall correctly. He's won the Super Bowl once already. God's blessed him. And Matthew was one of those captains. He's not a captain on the team. And someone asked him the question, what does it mean to be saved? I want you to hear what Matthew Slater said for the public to receive. Take a look and listen. Number one, you have to understand who God is and who his son is. And you have to understand what God says about your sin. And from there, you realize that, hey, you know, I am a sinful person, and my sin has separated me from uh, an eternal, perfect God. And But there's a backup plan to that. He sent his son, Jesus. And I believe that uh, Jesus is, is the son of God, is God. He came here. He died on the cross for my sins, your sins, everybody's sins, everybody who's willing to accept that truth. And if you're able to put your trust in him, 
and, and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is who he says he is, then from there you can initiate a relationship with him. But I also believe that repentance is a big part of that as well. Um, you have to turn from your old life of sin and try to, you know, model uh, a Christ-like life. And I think that that's something that we'll never fully figure out on this side of glory, but uh, it's certainly one day at a time process that I've been so blessed to be on uh, for the last 25 or so years. So, you know, like that? So who are you going to root for? <laughs> Matthew Slater. Amazing how God has given him this platform. Not for his own self-aggrandizement, not for his own ego. But what a great platform when asked to share the crystal clear gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, not just the man upstairs, and I want to thank little G God, but truly Christ is real. It's interesting because one of the players that's going to be one of the, in the backfield there in the safety is uh, Devin McCourty. And he was interviewed this last week, just a couple of days ago as well. And Devin writes, I think for me a lot has been uh, about his spiritual life. A lot has been with our chaplain and Matthew Slater. They've been great leaders. So for me, our weekly Bible studies, Monday and then Saturday before the games, I just try to take that message in my life each week. It's always a new lesson trying to stay in the Word, and I think that this, that's the biggest thing. We talk about it individually, and the group of guys is just staying in the Word and trying to live our life by that. Not just coming to Bible study two times a week. Not just coming to Bible study two times a week and then leaving it there. But taking it outside and putting it to work. I think the biggest thing is, I, think, I don't think of it as leadership, but just holding each other accountable. I think that's been the biggest thing in our team, a group of guys just trying to be good men, good fathers, good sons, good husbands. We're always talking about that and trying to encourage one another. Isn't that powerful? These guys we watch in the big Super Bowl, these are godly men who have a commitment to Christ because they've removed sin, they're pursuing God and His righteousness, and they're having influence upon people around this world. That's commitment. That's what God wants. But sometimes what happens is we compromise. And this is what happened to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat living a godly life and his compromise came in three ways. It's when I allow myself to be influenced by unholy alliances. And you can read on your own in the scriptures, but I give you the one verse that counts for the sake of time. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Je Jehoshaphat's son married the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. It's a very unholy alliance. And that began to tear apart that commitment to Christ or to God as it was in those days. But for us, when you have unholy alliances, it creates corruption and compromise. What's an unholy alliance? Here's my definition of it. It is any person, activity, or thing that distracts you from the character and commands of God. It can be something evil. Now, I don't think a lot of us are going to be risk going after the Asherah goddesses of the Old Testament. We're probably not hanging out with King Ahab or sending our sons and daughters to marry somebody from their offspring. 
That's just not probably going to happen to us. We also know unholy alliances can include things like pornography, stealing, lying, hanging out with people that are constantly getting drunk. Now, we know those things are, are wrong. I'm not going to have to pound those. But unholy alliances can be sometimes something that sneaks up on us. I've used two illustrations that I'll pr- combine together. A few weeks ago, I talked about a friend of mine whose name is Mike. And his wife came to me, you might recall, and said, hey, you've got to do something. Our marriage is really going badly. I said, why is that? Because Mike is playing softball. And I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. I play with Mike on softball teams as well back then when I could run. And she said he's always gone on weekends. Every weekend he's got tournaments, and I and my kids spend no time with Mike. That became an unholy alliance because it took him from the character and commands of God. Contrast that, it's softball again. Another friend of mine whose name is Ed. Ed joined a softball league. Ed didn't know Jesus. But because Ed was playing softball with believers who do know Jesus, those believers influenced Ed to become a follower of Jesus himself. And that became a holy alliance. So what I'm suggesting, and not just suggesting, but saying outright, is that I need to be careful that whether it's jobs, sports, habits, whatever it may be, priorities in my life, if it is causing me to be distracted from the commands and character of God, it may be an unholy alliance. If on the other hand, like Matthew Slater and Devin McCourty, playing the game of football in the Super Bowl becomes an opportunity to display the character of Christ and His commands to those around me because God's given me this platform, it becomes a holy alliance. Everything is different, but for me to have a discernment about compromise is to recognize those unholy alliances that may be taking me out of the arena of what God says and who God is. So I need to be careful about unholy alliances that tear my heart from the character of God. That's what we want to be careful about. Compromise also comes in the form of failing to understand and discern the deception, distortion of God's Word. It's an amazing thing that King Ahab wanted to partner together with Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat to battle against an enemy. Second Chronicles 18 says, Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Ahab, please inquire first of the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel assembled the prophets, 400 men, and said to them, Shall we go up up against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into your hand. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And then here is the key. The king Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, always evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat, let not the king say so. You see, Ahab and now Jehoshaphat were compromising because they didn't like what this one true prophet said from God. So I hate him. The 400, oh yeah, we'll say anything you want to hear. I need to be discerning because the Spirit of God... Actually, an evil spirit went to these false prophets and they would always tell Ahab what he wants to hear. We live in a day where evil spirits are actually speaking through pastors, church leaders, so-called spiritual mature people. And that evil spirit is saying things to people they want to hear. And then when someone comes along and says, no, this is what God actually says, 
The world hates that. Compromise comes from a distortion of God's word. And then finally, compromise comes when I make bad decisions, stupid decisions that lead to terrible consequences. Here's what happened. So King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat, they do ally themselves together to go to battle against Ramoth Gilead. And so here is what King Ahab tells Jehoshaphat he should do. And so they align together, and the story is told in 2 Chronicles 18, 28 through 34. But one of the things that Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, and this is the stupidest thing I think I've ever read in the Bible. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, when we go to battle... I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you, Jehoshaphat, dress up like a king because they want to kill the king. So Jehoshaphat dresses up like a king. And I think, this is insanity. What are you doing? It reminds me of this Far Side cartoon. <laughs> Two deer talking to one another. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. That was Jehoshaphat. He dresses up like a king and he goes out there and they see him and they think, that's the king, shoot him. And so Jehoshaphat then prays to God, oh God, save me, they're shooting at me. And then God intervenes and stops the arrows from being shot at Jehoshaphat. And if you read the account, one lone man, it says they just shot an arrow randomly in the air and it found King Ahab through one of the gaps in his shield and killed him. It tells me, you know, my, my sister-in-law referred to not learning from experience of life. She referred to that as the dumb tax. She said, don't pay the dumb tax. The dumb tax is where I keep on doing stupid things, but don't learn from experience. Jehoshaphat was paying the dumb tax, and we can't afford to live that way. We have to live with discernment. And here's what God loves to do. That when we compromise, He wants to bring us back. God wants to forgive us. God wants to renew us. God wants to restore us. And I love this. In the very next chapter, after this failed attempt to battle, and Jehoshaphat cries out before God, wearing all of his kingly array, and he is shot at, but God saves him. Then he comes back to the Lord. And here is what Jehu, who was a prophet of God, came to him. We need Jehus to come to us to say what he said to Jehoshaphat. And this is what he said. But there is some good in you, Jehoshaphat, for you have removed the Asherah from the land, this God, this godless idol, and you have set your heart to seek the Lord. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out against among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, that's the north, from the south to the north, and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Brought them back. You know, when Matthew talked about repentance, that's repentance. When we come back, when we come back to the Lord. Now, let me illustrate something. There's a young couple that used to attend church here until they moved back east, and they are Mark and Abby Munzing. Actually, Mark Munzing actually attended here. He kind of grew up here. And then one day he came back and introduced me to his wife. So I met her. Then over this last year, Mark has been emailing me, and I think they live in North Carolina, South Carolina, somewhere back there for a job. He says, Abby's pregnant. 
Then another email came back. We found out that Abby's, the baby, has a genetic disorder. And it's trisomy, trisomy, I'm not even saying that correctly, but some of you will recognize that. It's a very, very fatal genetic disorder of the baby in her womb. And they were given a lot of counsel as to how they should handle that. And their commitment to Jesus Christ remained steadfast. And she gave birth to that baby. And you see, his name is Tavish. And Mark would give me an update, and I'd email back, still praying for you, trusting God. And Tavish just lasted hours, if not a day, until Davish, Tavish passed away. But the heartfelt love that Mark and Abby had for little Tavish is powerful. He then sent me a link to a memorial service that they had for little Tavish. It was a true worship service. And I, it's an hour long, so I couldn't show it all to you. But what I've taken is about two minutes of Abby memorializing Tavish. And why do I show this to you? Or for you to listen to it at least. It's because she is giving to us a picture. Now as you think about this, think about this. She's given us a picture of how God cares for us. And when you go through these traumatic things of losing a child, it can tend to want to compromise your faith, but they remain committed. Because going in, they weren't committed. Coming out, they're still committed. No compromise. But it's an image of God's love for us, the way they love little Tavish. Listen to Abby talk about her little boy. Um, so I wrote a letter to Tavish that I wanted to read to everybody. So it says, Dear Tavish, the day we found out Mommy was pregnant changed our lives forever. We were so excited and scared at the same time. We had no idea what to expect, but we loved you already. Halfway through my pregnancy, we found out that you were going to be very different from other children. We were shocked and scared. We didn't know what to do. But God knew. He introduced us to people who had also walked this road and knew how to guide us through it. We prayed for you every day. We hoped that the doctors would be wrong. We knew that there wasn't much chance that you would stay with us long, but we loved you, and you fought to live, so we fought to give you that chance. The day you were born was the best day of my life. I finally got to hold you and kiss your perfect face. We could not have loved you more. The doctors thought we would lose you right then, but as soon as they gave you to me, you started to cry, and we knew you were going to keep on fighting. We made sure you were taken care of for the next few days, and we became hopeful as you continued to do well. We held you while we sang songs and read to you our favorite books from when we were kids. Then you started to decline, and nothing we did made it better. During the next day and a half, we watched as you continued to fight for life. And as long as we knew that you wanted to keep fighting, we continued to fight for you. As soon as you told us it was time to go, we hugged you close, comforted you, and kissed you. Then we said goodbye. Throughout all of this, you never gave up. And you fought for life as long as your body would let you. We are so proud of you, and we love you so much. We're looking forward to the day when we will get to see you again, and thank you for the blessing you are. 
love mommy and daddy. I love those words. You can't imagine anything harder to do than that. To take this little child with imperfections and still hand him over to the Lord. And the image that comes to my mind when I watch that is that I often am like Tavish. All of my imperfections, as you could see, some of them were visible on the outside, some of them are on the inside. But with all of my imperfections, God still loves me. And as I fight for the life that I want to live for the cause of Jesus Christ, God says, I embrace that. And he asks us to remain committed, not compromising, as he continues to embrace us and hold us, hold us in his mighty hands. And that's why Jesus came into this world, because he knew that we are broken and failed and frail people, and we are prone to compromise. We are prone to distorting truth of God's word. We are prone to unholy alliances. We are prone to the same things that Jehoshaphat struggled with thousands of years ago. But God still loves us. And so I'm going to invite us to take communion now as an opportunity for us to once again say, Yes, Lord, I want to renew. There is still good in me, as Jehu said to Jehoshaphat. As you seek the Lord, as you turn back to the Lord, and as our leaders prepare the elements, I invite you to prepare your heart that during this communion service now, this is our opportunity to experience God's full love. That whatever is broken in us, whatever needs renewal in us, that His mighty hands would hold us and draw us close back to Him. And that if you've had compromise, God is waiting for you to turn to Him and receive His forgiveness. So let's have the elements Pass the bread first. It symbolizes the body of Jesus. It's his body that was crucified on that cross because he knows we're imperfect people that need his perfect love. So let me pray for this bread. Father God, thank you for the bread. Thank you for the bread of life who is Christ. Thank you for your love for us with all of our imperfections that you still want to hold us and embrace us. And this communion reflects that love. So God, as we draw close to you, we know that you will draw close to us as we take this bread together. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus Christ told us that this bread symbolizes his body. And he asks us to remember him by eating it together. So let's eat it together. The cup about to be passed symbolizes the blood of Jesus. God loves us that much. Again, imperfections and all. So that he could restore us to himself. The righteousness of Christ is not something we gain by working hard. It's something that is a gift given through Christ because of his shed blood for us. You've never received his forgiveness. Confess your sins to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And he will embrace you. He will embrace you and love you like you've never experienced God's love before. So as the element comes to you, make that a prayer to the Lord so that we can share together a communion in the holiness of God. Thank you, Father, for this element. Thank you that you have given to us a tangible reminder constantly of your love for us and the work you want to perform through us. Thank you for this, your shed blood as it's remembered this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus gave us these words. He said this cup to his disciples that first time. He said it's symbolic of a new covenant, a new covenant that comes out of love, out of grace, freedom of forgiveness. 
And he says, I want you to always regularly take this cup and use it as a constant reminder of how much I love you. And that no matter what you've done, I want to forgive you. No matter who you are, I ask for you to seek me. And I will hold you in my mighty hands. And so he asks us to remember him by drinking together this cup as a reminder of his new covenant with us. In Jesus' name. God wants that kind of renewal for us. And let me just wrap up Jehoshaphat. God seeks for us to have a humble relationship with him. One of the things that happens, though, on occasion is where we have this commitment to the Lord and then life doesn't work out very well. That's what happened to Jehoshaphat. He has this renewal to the Lord. They seek the Lord. They turn their ways back to the Lord. And then enemy powers begin to attack them. The Moabites, the Ammonites, these are the surrounding eastern powers that were wanting to take him out. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? This is what God invites us to do. And that when that assault comes to us, we humble ourselves to a point of praise. Notice the text on the screen. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. When the stress of opposing forces, and for us, it's not just literal Moabites and Ammonites. It could be spiritual powers. It's oppression. It's stress. It's distress. It's discouragement. It's conditions that God somehow in this evil world allows to press in upon us. And that's what's happening to Jehoshaphat. Even in his commitment to Christ, or to, to God as we know him, but for us, our commitment to Christ, these things still push in on us. Even after a service like this, we'll walk out that door and the reality of problems still exist. And so what do they do? They bow before the Lord and he worships the Lord. Worship is a powerful tool that God invites us into as part of the remedy for the distress of life. Worship strengthens our trust in him. Notice what it said in Certain Chronicles 20. Listen to me and put your trust in the Lord. Your God, you will be established. He will appoint those who are praised Him in holy attire as they went out before the army, said, Give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness is everlasting. The troops are lined up to go against the Ammonites and the Moabites, these enemy powers. But who's in front of the army? People of worship. They're going to take the first hit. But they're in the attire of worship. And God says, you go before my people and your praise will build their trust. Worship helps us overcome the attacks. No, not literal armies like the Moabites, but spiritual attacks. We live in a world that wants to take us out because we believe and live the truth. Notice the power of worship. 2 Chronicles 20, 22, and they began singing and praising the Lord, set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, and Moab, and Mount Seir, which is the southern part of the area below Jerusalem, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. Worship defeats the spiritual enemies that want to take us out. Through stress and distress, we begin to compromise? No. But worship brings a heart back before the Lord. Worship stirs a heart of joy 
and has this testimony to others of our mighty God. Notice, every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with great joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. It gives us the sense of victory that we are together in this, that we have power in the force of God's spiritual army. And then it goes on. And they came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands. You want the dread and all the spiritual forces against you? You come and worship before God. You bow before God. You fast before God. You acknowledge Him as Almighty God. And He begins to defeat the enemy around us. And that's what happened here. When they heard about their worship, that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, they were disbanded. God does something through worship. And that's why we encourage worship here. Worship privately, absolutely. But worship corporately, I'm preaching to almost the literal choir. But statistics have given to me something that's concerning for me as a pastor. Statistically, a lot of our folks worship twice a month. Every Sunday? No, twice a month. And I say, I'm not sure that's enough. So I encourage worship corporately and privately that is faithful and regular and consistent. So I love Martin Luther's quote. At home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. So corporate worship unites us with one voice. I love the songs we sang earlier. Behold our God. And as Ron says, let's just be a choir before God. There's something powerful about that. And I invite you to regularly make that part of your spiritual diet of coming before God corporately to sing His praises. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do that. We're going to come before God and worship Him as that choir that defeats the spiritual forces that are against us so that we could have the victory and learn to trust God, no matter what the stress factor is, that it does something to our hearts to know that we can believe in an almighty God. Part of that worship includes giving, to say, God, all I have, it belongs to you. You own it all. And it's part of that bowing before God. It's part of that humility before God. It's part of that trust that God will take care of me. But I want to honor Him through my worship of praise, of gifts, of service. All of that is part of the worship. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank You that we can come before You to know You as a mighty God. And Lord, as Jehoshaphat reminds us that when we seek You, when we humble ourselves before You, when we bow and worship at Your throne, God, You do mighty things because you seek for us to worship you in spirit and truth. So God, we want to come and worship you now as a congregation, as a church family that acknowledges you as the one on the throne, the one that rules over all, that God, in commitment and even out of compromise, we renew our hearts because that's what you want. And we want what you want. 
and help us when we don't want it as much as we should. So God, we come to honor your name, to give glory to you, to humble ourselves before your presence as we worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.